Welcome to Transformed by Grace, an in-depth Bible study of God's Word, presented by the Berean Bible Society. Join us each time on this station as Pastor Kevin brings the transforming message of God's grace revealed through the Holy Scriptures. Back in 1958, a small community in northeastern Pennsylvania built a little red brick building that was to be their police department, their fire department, and their city hall. And they were proud of their new building. It was the result of sacrificial giving and careful planning. When the building was completed, they had a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and more than 6,000 people were there, nearly all the town's residents. It was the biggest event of the year. Within less than two months, however, they began to notice some ominous cracks on the side of this red brick building. Sometime later, it was noticed that the windows would not shut all the way. Then it was discovered that the doors wouldn't close correctly. Eventually, the floor shifted and left ugly gaps in the floor covering and corners. The roof began to leak. Within a few more months, it had to be evacuated to the embarrassment of the builder and to the disgust of the taxpayers. A firm did an analysis shortly thereafter and found that the blasts from a nearby mining area were slowly but effectively destroying the building. Imperceptibly, down beneath the foundation, there were small shifts and changes taking place that caused the whole foundation to crack. You couldn't feel it or even see it from the surface, but quietly and down deep, there was a weakening. A city official finally had to write across the door of the building, condemned, not fit for public use. Ultimately, the building had to be demolished. There's a moral there, of course. Erosion goes unnoticed when you play with temptation until your character is permanently damaged and our lives even can be destroyed. Luke 4, 1-2 read, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended... He afterward hungered. More certain than death, taxes, and hunger is the reality of temptation. It's the universal affliction of being a human. And it's been said, temptations are like stray cats. Treat one nicely, and before you can blink, it'll be back with a dozen of its friends. We all face temptation. There are principles here and the Lord's temptation by Satan that can help us combat and have the strength to turn from temptation in our lives. The Lord here is engaged in spiritual conflict with the devil. It is not a conflict that comes about because Christ inadvertently finds himself somehow involved with the devil by accident. He enters into conflict with Satan led and prompted by the Holy Spirit. It's not as if Satan came after him. It's rather that Christ came after Satan. Mark 1.12 says that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drove the Lord into this conflict because it was absolutely critical at the outset of his ministry that he be given this test of the power of Satan against him. 
So here at the launch point of the Lord's ministry, there is this concerted work of temptation by the devil intending to destroy him as Messiah. But from God's viewpoint, this temptation was intended to validate Christ as the Messiah and God's Son because Satan would not and could never succeed in any way in drawing him into sin. As he did here, Christ would do the same throughout his entire earthly ministry. He overpowered the kingdom of darkness. This conflict demonstrates Christ's power and authority over Satan and his power over sin. And defeating Satan and sin here was just a foretaste of when he would conquer and crush Satan and sin for us by the cross and his resurrection. Satan had conquered the sinless Adam. The question is here, could Satan conquer the sinless Christ? But he could not. Where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded. It teaches us that in the first Adam, we all die. In the last Adam, we live. The Lord is filled with the fullness of the Spirit. And after His baptism in the Jordan River, He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Judean wilderness was an isolated, hot, rocky, barren, dry, desolate area, a place of scorpions and snakes. The Lord is there for 40 days, and for all those 40 days, He's in a conflict with the devil. It's not that just at the end of the 40 days the devil tempted Him. It was an intense 40-day battle, so intense that Christ does not eat anything for 40 days. During those 40 days, he was not even conscious of being hungry. It says in verse 2, when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now, I don't know about you, but if I miss one meal, I'm really hungry. And I'm thinking about food. 40 days without food and not being hungry till afterward, that's teaching us something about the intensity of the conflict. The Lord was so totally focused on the will of the Father, focused on the enemy, focused on doing what is right, that there is no thought of anything else, not even hunger. For 40 days the onslaught went on, but Satan was unsuccessful. There was nothing in Christ's nature as the God-man to which the devil could hook a temptation and make it successful. So every response to temptation was immediate. Every response to temptation was precise. And Christ never winced, never budged, never moved. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. After that 40 days of struggle is over, Christ, who is fully man, feels hungry. Satan sense in that hunger in what he thinks as a possible vulnerability. He moves in for what he thinks might be the kill. And so what happens next after the 40 days is three temptations that Satan devises that are the most brash, most ruthless, and the most clever. Luke 4 verses 3 to 4 say, And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The devil said unto him, When the devil speaks to the Lord, 
He does so with a measure of truth. And deception works most effectively if it has partial truth in it. And so when the devil speaks, he starts from a point of truth. The devil said to him, If thou be the Son of God. If is not a supposition, but an affirmation. It has the idea of since. Since you're the Son of God, or in view of the fact that you are the Son of God. The devil has known the Son of God since his creation. He's known the Son of God before he fell. And he admits and he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Satan tells the Lord, command this stone that it be made bread. Another truth the devil uses subtly was that Christ as God and Creator could make bread from those stones. Later, from five loaves and two fishes, the Lord created and multiplied enough bread and fish to feed 5,000 and more people. But at first glance, you look at that and say, is that a temptation? It doesn't seem like a temptation to make bread. Bread isn't sinful. It doesn't seem wrong to eat bread if you haven't eaten for 40 days. This was not gluttony at all. It wouldn't cause anyone harm. It would only satisfy normal, everyday, physical needs. This wasn't done something to show off to a crowd of people, because there was nobody there but Christ and the devil. It was a personal, private temptation. But that that also teaches us something, because often we're tempted by the devil when we are alone with a private temptation. The devil tempts the Lord here to break his fast and make bread from stones. And the implication in the temptation here is this. Look, if the Father really loved you, you wouldn't be hungry. The Since you are the Son of God suggests that Christ had a right to something that the Father had withheld. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fell when they doubted the goodness of God that perhaps God was holding something back and wasn't as kind as they thought. And so the devil questions God's goodness, that the Father hadn't provided food for him. He's asking the Lord to question whether he could trust the Father's love. You're the Son of God. Why are you hungry, is the idea. I don't think the Father's as good to you as you might have thought, or you wouldn't be in this situation and be hungry. There must be something wrong with the Father's love for His beloved Son, since His beloved Son was hungry. And since He was the Son of God, the devil suggests to Him that it was time to use His own prerogatives for Him to act independently of the Father. This has monumental eternal implications. Satan wants to destroy Christ. But what Satan wants also to do is to get the Son of God to resist the Father's will and the Spirit's power and grab satisfaction and act independently on his own and put a breach in the Trinity. This is not something small that's happening here. This is a battle directed not only at the deity and perfection of Jesus Christ, but right at the essence, right at the unity of the Trinity. The force of the temptation then was to rend the Trinity, to fracture it, to create rebellion and disobedience and create a breach in the Godhead. 
the Lord was being tempted to take it on Himself to decide when the food would come and how the food would come to use His power to serve Himself. And He wants Him to distrust the Father to forsake dependence on the Father. When Christ answers, He says, it is written. Every time He answers, He quotes Scripture. And that's our strength to overcome temptation too. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, the Lord says. He is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. It was made in reference to Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The Lord was in the wilderness 40 days. In their wandering, Israel often distrusted God's love when they became hungry and they murmured one of the garlics and leeks from back in Egypt. In contrast, Christ trusts the Father implicitly and passes the test. He refuses to doubt God's love and care. His quote shows that getting bread is not the most important thing in life. Obedience to every word of God is what is most important in life. We'll be returning to the program in just a minute. But first, we'd like to take this time to thank you, our partners, for making these programs possible. If you would like to access our library of helpful Bible study tools, go to BereanBibleSociety.org. A Praying Life, True Spirituality and Prayer is a 50-page booklet written by Pastor Kevin J. Sadler. This booklet demonstrates from Scripture how God desires prayer to fill the Christian life. God hears and answers prayer, and He tells us in His Word to pray without ceasing and commune with Him continually relating every experience in life to Him. There is no part of our lives that isn't prayer material. To order your copy, contact the Berean Bible Society for pricing and availability at 262-255-4750. To receive our free full-color 32-page monthly magazine, the Berean Searchlight, call 262-255-4750 or subscribe online at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. Thank you again for your generous gifts. And now, back to the teaching with Pastor Kevin. In John 4.34, the Lord said, My meat, or my food that is, is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. Since Christ had received no instruction from the Father to turn stones into bread, though He could turn stones into bread, He would not act on His own, and He would never obey Satan, no matter how intense His hunger. Christ wasn't concerned about personal sacrifices. His desire in His perfect union with the Father was to exalt the Word of God and the will of God of God. The Son affirms His absolute confidence in the Father. He knows He knew the Father loved Him, and He knew He would meet every need. As the Union Pacific Railroad was being constructed, an elaborate trestle bridge was built across a large canyon in the west. Wanting to test the bridge, the builder loaded a train with enough extra cars and equipment to double its normal payload. 
The train was then driven to the middle of the bridge where it stayed and sat for an entire day. One worker asked, Are you trying to break this bridge? The builder replied, No, I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. In the same way, the temptations Christ faced weren't designed by God to see if Christ would sin, but to prove that He wouldn't and that He couldn't ever sin as God Almighty. Luke 4, verses 5-8 to read, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. In the second temptation, the devil supernaturally showed Christ all the kingdoms of the world in a sweeping vision in a moment of time. From their vantage point, Greece, Rome, Egypt, all the nations of the world were seen. Ultimately, God is in control. But there is a sense in which Satan does have authority over the kingdoms of this world. And it's because of man's sin and rebellion against God. And thus Satan is called, in John 12, the prince of this world. And the Apostle Paul calls him the god of this world. And the Lord doesn't correct Satan here when he says that these kingdoms were his to offer. We definitely see Satan's sway over this world all the time in the state that it is in, with its wickedness, false worship, deception, terror, murders, and the destruction of people's lives. The temptation was about power and glory. Revelation 11.15 says, God has purposed that the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. So Satan was offering to Christ what would be his eventually anyway. But Satan was again trying to separate the Son from the Father to drive a wedge within the Trinity. Satan tempted him on his own corrupt terms with immediate power, immediate glory, immediate authority from his hand rather than waiting on the Father and his will and his plan. Satan offered all this to the Son in exchange for his unrighteous disobedience rather than righteous obedience to the Father's plan and the Father's will. And the Father's will was for Christ to die the death of the cross. It was suffering first and then the glory of the kingdom that would follow when Christ will rule over the world. The temptation was, here you are in this terrible barren place absolutely alone, no possessions, you're hungry, you have no food. Here you are, the Son of God. The Father said, this is my beloved Son, and He hasn't given you anything. But I'll give you all of this. I'll give you all this power to you right now on one condition. Satan said, if thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. He suggested a simple momentary act but one with eternal consequences. Bow down before me. He wanted to be worshipped by the Son of God. That would be the ultimate for Satan. 
Satan still wants to be worshipped. He concocts false religions all over the face of the world that ultimately are forms of worshipping him. And like this, Satan still tempts us to sacrifice the eternal for the temporal and the immediate. But Christ would make no deal with the devil. The Lord again quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 this time. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Christ responds by saying, God alone is worthy of worship, service, and allegiance. I won't worship you. I'll never worship you. And uh, he would only serve God the Father. One day, Satan, again, is going to offer all the kingdoms of this world and their power and all their glory to a man. But that man's going to accept the offer. And that man's going to willingly worship Satan, the Antichrist. Luke 4, 9-13 read, And he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now again, supernaturally, Christ and Satan move out of the wilderness to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, a place of great significance for the Messiah. Satan takes the Lord to the top and highest part of the temple and taunts and tells him to cast thyself down from thence or dive off. The temptation is done again on the basis that if or since Christ was the Son of God, that this was entirely possible for him to do without any harm coming to him. And then Satan quotes scripture as a basis for asking him to do it. He quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12. It's a scary thought to think Satan saying, for it is written, when he is tempting to sin. The devil knows the Bible well, very well. He's had thousands of years to know it. And he misuses it to tempt and to deceive. The devil quotes Psalm 91, 11, 12, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, thus that any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. This is a messianic psalm, and it pledges protection for the Messiah. So Satan, again, he's acknowledging that he's both the Son of God and the Messiah. So Satan uses this scripture to tempt the Lord to throw himself down and thus give God an opportunity to have his word proven as true and that God keeps his promises. Satan was saying that this was an opportunity for God to put his power on display and at the same time give Christ the opportunity to prove to all that he is the Messiah and the Son of God by him falling down from the top of the temple and at some point the angels coming along and gathering him in their arms so that he'd come to a nice, soft landing. Then by this sensational stunt in this public place in Jerusalem, everybody would know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel, and he would gain the amazement of the world. Satan tempts Christ to present him as Messiah by this spectacular demonstration at the temple. 
This was an opportunity and this temptation for Christ to obtain fame and notoriety before men. By leaping into this busy courtyard of the temple, it would have been an entrance worthy of the Messiah and the Son of God, is what Satan was saying. But this was not the way of the Messiah, who came humbly to this world to save sinners, only seeking to do His Father's will, not the will of Satan, not gain fame or notoriety before men. He would demonstrate fully and finally and eternally that He is the Messiah and the Son of God by following God's will, by going to the cross and paying for sin at the cross and arising from the dead with power three days later, victorious over sin and death. Christ's response was, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The Lord quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, To test God is to doubt God, and to doubt God is not to trust God. To have tested the Father in this way would have been to question the Father's love, not prove it, and would have been for the Son to put His will above the Father's will. And Christ would have no part of cheap, faithless sensationalism. He would not become a flying hero on the suggestion of the devil. He would only do what the Father willed for Him to do in His life. An earthly ministry. Christ did not need to prove to himself or others that his Father cared and protected him. He knew the Father's care and love perfectly from eternity past. After this, the devil left in defeat, but he only left for a season, verse 13 says, or temporarily. He came back after Christ later and often in his earthly ministry to tempt the Savior away from the Father's will. But the Savior never, ever gave in. He defeated him every single time. Christ defeated Satan here, throughout his earthly ministry, and ultimately he defeated and he crushed the devil by the cross and by his resurrection. Satan's temptation revolved around three of mankind's strongest drives. Physical appetite, desire for power and possessions and glory, and desire for public recognition. How we defeat temptation and sin is the same way Christ did, in the power of the Spirit and by the power of the Word of God. Three temptations, three times Christ quoted Scripture. It shows how to overcome temptation, that we need to live by Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. We must remain committed to God's Word, growing in our knowledge of it, memorizing it, knowing it, obeying it, studying it out, and living it out. It is the anchor for our lives. It is our strength against temptation. George Sweeting rightly said that every temptation is an opportunity for us to draw nearer to God. And that's where power is against temptation and sin. As we draw nearer to God, and we live in the strength of His Word, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, our lives are going to be transformed by grace. Join us next time. We're going to look at the example of Joseph for how we can overcome temptation. Thank you for watching. Thank you again for tuning in to Transformed by Grace. We appreciate your prayer support and the financial gifts. 
The purpose and mission of the Berean Bible Society is to help you understand the whole counsel of the Word of God. For more information, visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org or give us a call at 262-255-4750. Or if you prefer, write us at the Berean Bible Society, P.O. Box 756, Germantown, Wisconsin, 53022. Now until next time, may you be transformed by God's grace.